The following conversation is with Dr. Kiran Jayaram. He's a professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida. In the conversation, we discuss topics related to his research in Haiti and international development. We touch on national and international migration, including his own family background, and his work with a group of scholars in Haiti and the Dominican Republic called Transnational Hispaniola, and his work with the Island Anthropologies event that, among other things, attempts to rethink the Caribbean as a container for what we conceive of as expected and normal there. When the conversation picks up, we discuss the anthropology of education right now in the time of COVID-19 and what teaching has looked like right now during the pandemic. So how's the, uh, the quarantine been treating you? You know, for me, it's been a change, but not much uh, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I'm either at my office or I'm at home. So if I'm at an office or at my home, it's effectively the same. Like I'm not mm-hmm. interacting with people really. So to spend more time at home is just more of the same. The only right. time where it becomes a real pinch is like, well, do I get to go on a date with my wife? You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's more like the personal life is affected more than like the professional in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And she's still working. So she works in the medical field. So, mm. um, you know, we're not, we haven't been economically hit. Um, it's just really just the personal life. Right. So what about you? like, yeah. And it's kind of similar in terms of like, I still have my work ahead of me. I'm preparing to write like grant proposals for my dissertation research and um, yeah, right now, just a lot of reading and writing and it, it, I'm also taking a summer course in public health, but that was already online. So right. it kind of is no change for me either, except like last summer, I was at least going to campus just to, you know, get out of the house or whatever, but you, you went yeah. to campus, did you? Yeah. Like last, well, last summer to do like work for my classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the main difference is just doing everything at home, which, you know, it, it, it's been okay. Okay. We're doing everything. It, cool. it just seems a lot like academics, just, uh, like everything's just a little bit different, but we kind of already have our work ahead of us in some ways. I don't know how you think what you think about that in terms of like how we're affected by COVID. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I guess, you know, for me, well, actually, you mentioned it, like I, I'm actually working with um, one of the doctoral students in the program, um, Matthew Payunen, uh, oh. to we're working on uh, developing a research project to look at, actually, it's almost a degree historical, what happened in the spring with instruction? Mm. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it may be important going forward to know what happened, if, if not only just demonstrative of that moment mm. in time, but also for moments of instruction, for learning, right? What you know, where are the weaknesses? You know, because it was not as, and many people have said this. This this was not a switch to online, mm-hmm. right? This was not switch to online teaching. This was a switch to remote instruction, which is right, right distinct. Um, I had been working with online teaching. I've taught online courses before. So uh, I actually integrated a lot of my um, teaching with uh, uh, to Canvas so that right. there was 
you know, students already were familiar. Okay, I go to Canvas. This is the module that says about this. And, you know, then we would come to class and do activities. But uh, other teachers, they were clearly only face-to-face and there was no way for them to effectively make a switch in one week. So um, I think that this issue about understanding pedagogy is is going to be important going forward. But no, it was, it, you know, there's going to be, a, there's certainly pressures, I imagine, from the administration, as there always is, to, you know, reduce the budget and make things more cost effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they might think that, well, maybe we can just make this more of a regular thing and, you know, adjust mm-hmm. the budget this way. But, and then professors may be thinking, well, let's try and find best practices and come together so that we can, you know, do this really innovative teaching thing using this online format in the best interests. And it may all have the unintended consequences of rendering more precarious the situation of higher education and Mm -hmm. being more of a sort of soft blow to intellectualism in the country, in the world. Hmm. Wow. So that's, that's an, that's an interesting aspect because I know that you and, Matthew Payunin uh, talk about like the, an- the anthropology of education. Like that's a big uh, like interest of yours, I know. And um, yeah, it, like COVID and everything that sort of happened in terms of people going to quarantine and the distinction that you drew between you know, online instruction versus now it's just more remote, but it's mm-hmm. just the same format. Just now everything's remote. So I know for my classes and for a lot of others, they ended up going on Zoom mm-hmm. and now it's sort of having the in-class experience except mapping it on to Zoom. I can imagine that, first of all, you don't get as enough of the interaction that people usually have in face-to-face. And with being on Zoom, people are muting themselves. So now it's like you have to have much more intentionality of like hitting the unmute button and saying, oh, I'd like to chime in rather right. than just making eye contact and being like, you know what, I have something. Because that's another thing that I know that professors have that sort of relationship within the classroom getting to capture the energy that you know you can see someone like spark an idea and have the interest to say something and just having the option to be like what do you think about this like Mm -hmm. it's completely transitioned and changed when you put everything to remote instruction like on zoom yes uh, i mean and there is a degree of performance particularly uh for undergraduate courses, the, the you know, the the, anth- the cultural anthropology class, that's kind of the you know requirement for gen ed that they check off that box, uh, is is the type of course where there has to be a degree of performance by the instructor, but almost edutainment as well. Mm. And I think it's also important to understand how students interact with technology. You know, it's uh, where. Professors can think, okay, well, I'm doing this and we're having this type of a moment. And yet we look at, but well, it, goes, it reminds me actually of a, one of my early dissertation projects uh, when I was um, developing this. Uh, and I wrote a proposal to study how did people uh, in Haiti, in, this, in the capital, use internet and specifically, I was going to look at internet cafes because that there was a back in the time there was a window when there was a lot of those around the world and a lot in Haiti. And so I was interested in saying, well, how do people use the internet? 
And it's sort of a parallel that the, the, the head of Peace Corps at the time said, we want to encourage uh, all people in Haiti to have access to the internet. That's a really important goal. Mm -hmm. And I scratched my head when I heard that and I thought, more than dignified life and fresh water, you want to make sure right. you have access to the internet? Yeah. Um, and so I was a little puzzled by that, but I wanted to go see, well, how are people using the internet? And the takeaway is that they were using it for dating and music. Hmm. They use it to use hmm. social media and like making connections, uh, uh, both in Haiti, but a lot of times international dating sites. Mm -hmm. And then also just like videos and music. Yeah. And it, so like, is that what the guy in the Peace Corps had in mind with? <laughs> and analogously, yeah. when professors are doing certain things through online instruction, do they understand what the students are understanding? Do, do students, uh, do when professors are doing things and they're saying, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, do they really understand how students will interact with the, the technology? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wonder this and I'd like to, you know, I'm going to start introducing assignments where I get students to reflect upon their learning and their and their learning practices to say, you know, how are you taking these quizzes? Are you simply, you know, because I give quizzes in, for example, in a, in a basic class, 2410, the cultural anthropology and say, are you just like reading the stuff, studying the stuff as an, in a traditional way and then taking mm -hmm. the quiz? Or are you scanning through the stuff, looking at the quiz because they get multiple attempts uh, mm -hmm. and you know, Googling the answers or are they going on like Quizlet or whatever and just, mm. or are they like even sharing answers with each other? Right. Um, sharing questions and answers with each other. So right. to me, we need to understand more how are our students interacting with technology if we're, you know, at this moment, but also going forward with the idea of increasing online and remote instruction. Right. And that's a lot of interesting things you just touched on because in terms of the work in Haiti and how ultimately and in, in here, how things are actually being used versus the framework that people thought about when we first started engaging with it. So like you mentioned, apparently prioritizing like internet connection versus water and some of the fundamental resources. And it's like, there's a framework for what internet means. And it's like, people are more modern or people are more connected and that seems to be more important than anything else. And the funny thing being that the way that people actually interact with these things are unexpected. I guess people are probably expecting people to like communicate with people across the world and maybe build economic and social relationships. And maybe that's the framework that they had in mind. But at the end of the day, people just started dating and doing these other things that are probably more local. They probably integrate it into what they were already doing mm -hmm. rather than, doing this revolutionary thing that we imagine. And it sounds like with this, it's like we imagine again, technology being able to connect us and be able to do all of these things in terms of like, you know, engaging in, I guess, uh, class discussions and trying to expect and I guess moderate what students are doing, but at the same time, exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it is different. And I guess I'd wonder in terms of using like, Course Hero, Quizlet, and all those like online formats that give resources to students. Yeah, like I, I 
in my public health course, because a lot of them are, are online, they explicitly say like not to use these resources, <laughs> and that using them is considered cheating because a lot of those resources give answers to some of the quizzes and exams that public health like uh, classes tend to give. Mm-hmm. So I guess people from these classes ended up uploading them onto like Course Hero. And so now you can get the answers there. <laughs> and so it, it's just, yeah, like these online formats are like these resources that now are repositories. And now we're having to think about, do we want our uh, students even using them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and this gets to some of the core issues that I care about in anthropology. Uh, and that has to do with education and learning. Right. Uh, you know, my, uh, my, one of my mentors was Hervé Varenne uh, from mm. uh, Teachers College at Columbia. And he was very much interested in these sorts of things, but not necessarily at schools per se, but more of how schools fit into this larger context. Mm. And there's the issue of what is taught versus what is learned. And it may be that something is learned, which is only tangentially related to what was taught. Right. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then there's the other issue of kind of like the hidden curriculum. Mm. You know, uh, I think about a time when I did some, uh, when I was doing research in Haiti on, uh, it was for the World Bank. And I, the project I was working on as a consultant was related to barriers to late enrollment uh, mm-hmm. to primary school. So with the Millennium Development Goals, and other sort of pushes at the international and national levels, there was a large push to get all children into primary school by age six. Mm. And that's still a goal, right? Uh, And so I, but they found that there was a large number of people in different parts of Haiti that were not enrolling age six. And sometimes it'd be up to, even I heard as late as age 12, enrolling Mm. in first grade, which obviously creates its own problems. Um, and so I went down there to figure out what was going on. And the short answer was it was economics. Mm. The long answer was it was economics due to ecological issues like drought or hurricanes, intense rains, uh, soil erosion that prevented agricultural production and thus income health so that the health of a provider would, would prevent someone from generating income. Uh, kinship, which is actually something I'm working on, uh, writing up with a colleague in Belgium to show that basically the the proximity, the social proximity to the head of the household is correlates with the likelihood of enrolling on time to school. Hmm. So that if you have children who are foster children or, you know, the children from a child from another marriage or something like this, there there's it's possible that they're less likely to enroll it on time to school. Hmm. I bring all this up to say, while I'm doing this research project, um, two things happened. One, when I, I was going and talking to them about what we can do, you know, for schooling and schooling and schooling. And after this, one of the school administrators towards the end of my time there, he turns to me, he's like, this is great. All the things you're promising about schooling and world bank is promising to do. He's like, can you help us get water to our village? 
Wow. <laughs> and it was just boom, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, and I'm like, <clears throat> and I had to, you know, it was a really sort of reflective moment for me for, to say like, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I can't, I understand, you know, I'll talk with people, but that's not what I can do. And it's not what the world bank is going to do. Yeah. Uh, and that was a great moment for, for, for reflexivity about understanding development. Mm. Second point, Jermaine, to what we were talking about previously with teaching and education and learning is that you have in the, you know, throughout the schools in, in Haiti, and this doesn't apply just to Haiti, but to many places that are in a sort of novel point in the transition from agriculturalism and other ways of life into a more, you know, North Atlantic based capitalist model of exchange uh, is that these schools really uh, to succeed in, in school in Haiti and to graduate high school uh, is a rare thing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the exception rather than the rule. I think there's, um, I think there's something only like 70,000 maybe people that graduate high school each year. And now it doesn't mean that they went straight through, but it's just overall. Um, and yet I believe the population of Haiti is something like 50% under the age of 18. So somewhere in their range of four to 6 million people under wow. the age of 18. And you only get 70,000 people graduating high school a year. Wow. So there's a problem there. Um, and the school system is not as robust as it, as it should be because of lack of materials, lack of training, uh, infrastructure, all sorts of issues that are faced across the globe. But the other thing is that as a part of this Millennium Development Goal push, a lot of, I don't know exactly where this is coming from, if it's the initiative of the administrators and teachers, or if it's coming from outsiders saying, we're doing this project, so do this. Mm -hmm. Um, But people are encouraging their children are encouraging students to not do domestic work. Mm-hmm. So when they go home, the girls are not supposed to wash dishes and do laundry and, you know, help with food preparation, these sorts of things. The boys are not supposed to go out and help their parents in the fields. Hmm. So effectively they're uneducating them hmm. in this sort of agriculturalist productive knowledge. Mm-hmm and attempting to inculcate a more industrialized system of knowledge. Right. But yet that system is flawed. And then there's the, the, the sort of myth of education as panacea mm-hmm. that, okay, we'll get education and then things will be better. But if there's no job market, you know, mm-hmm. are they just encouraging migration? Well, yeah. Yeah. Then you have issues of like, yeah, people leaving home, maybe they did get their education, but now they're not using what they learned there at home because they have to migrate. And it's almost like there's like, it sounds like there's a couple of issues in terms of, yeah, the actual needs that people are expressing, like water, like something so fundamental that they're not getting at the same time saying, I guess, prioritizing through these development projects, like, yeah, education and yeah, making sure people hit primary school yeah, at, at a young age, by the age of six. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting in that it's almost like a sort of accounting or like our, own, like our own hierarchy needs to be erected in terms of what they want 
something like water versus what we want for them, mm-hmm. something like education. But at the same time, it, it would also feel wrong to like withhold education for water. So it, it's almost like the needs are so um, great in, in a lot of ways. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of it's economic in terms of what you're saying. Like the fact that ultimately if they did get the education there, is there even a structure to then give them a career back home? No, they they would have to migrate. And I guess it's interesting because you also see those kinds of issues even locally within the United States. Like when we talk about the rural versus urban divide, yeah. like if you grew up in a rural area and you did get an education at like the largest nearby college, depending on what you got your education in, you might have to migrate somewhere else. And you get this issue of like, yeah, like all of the like elite and like all of, all of the the places where like job centers and economics and even like institutions like universities are, you know, all like relegated to the coasts in in the U.S. and like that's a whole other thing that like we see it all around the world. And yeah. on a global issue, it just seems much more costly because now you have issues of like. Um, like documentation and and immigration and mm-hmm. and all those things seem to seem like they would become an issue. What what does that look like for for like your research and what you've seen in terms of like people having to migrate and all that? Well, I, I, there's a there's a personal note when you're saying things, and there's the professional note. You know, I am the right. product of this sort of rural to urban migration, uh, right. both nationally and internationally. My mother was uh, what I like to call rural elite from Kansas. And mm-hmm. she grew up in a small town of one to 2000 people. Yeah. Uh, and she was, but because she was, you know, very smart, uh, was able to, you know, finish high school. Uh, and then she was, she went into nurses training. It wasn't nursing school yet. There wasn't such thing uh, in that area. So she had to leave her small town and go to another slightly larger town to get nurses mm-hmm. training. And then she had to go to the, the next larger town, which was Kansas city mm-hmm. and, and work there. Uh, and so that's how she got to Kansas city from her small town, you know, because there mm-hmm. was just, there was no training in the small town and there was, then she got the training and there was not enough jobs there. So she had to go to another city. Wow. And for my father, who's a, who's from India, I'm from rural India, Brahmin elite from rural India, right? Mm -hmm. And he came from that area and then had to go to another town uh, that was slightly bigger to go to school. And then once he finished his medical training, um, this was also during the Vietnam War. uh, And this is when the United States changed the immigration policy to admit more, uh, to allow for more doctors basically to come in. And so that's why you had a lot of immigration from of Indian doctors in the mid to late 60s hmm. coming to the United States. And so he came to New York and then eventually to Kansas City and met my mom. So oh. this this labor migration is, uh, hmm. uh, is something, and educational and labor migration is something very personal to me. Right. Um, yeah. And then professionally, you know, with my research with... Um, people from Haiti in the Dominican Republic, which was my doctoral research. Um, I, you know, it's, you know, I, I designed my dissertation in a way, and I just stated the population, people from Haiti in the Dominican Republic, 
because I distinguish between the university students and the laborers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because uh, of an understanding of the international movement of people, right? Um, whatever the causes may be, and that's certainly an, issue, an important topic, there's also their experience and there's sort of, there's a degree of, I don't want to say intentionality is perhaps not the best word, but some sort of reason I'm, you know, I'm going here to work so that I can provide for my family. Right. Um, And so that population, the labor migrants, we can call them uh, from Haiti has one set of issues. The university students then have have another set of issues. Mm-hmm. There are different issues, sort of regimes of mobility and uh, the issues of documentation and paperwork of, you know, the state stamping, you have the, uh, the, uh, the right to be here, um, but you don't have the right to work, to work, right? A lot of labor immigrants come across in the cheapest way they can on a tourist visa uh, and they're not supposed to work. But if they're working in the informal economy, like, yeah, then who's going to stay? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's so interesting. For the university students, they have a separate set of issues that has to do with, you know, the term, the academic terms, the length of their visas. If they come in on, you know, a year long or uh, they can sometimes come in on a tourist visa or two month or year long. They also, some people can try and come in on a, student visa, but student visas are hard to get. And then there are fees crossing the border, going back and forth from Haiti to the Dominican Republic. And it become, it became a real issue in the past decade uh, as more university students moved out of Haiti or po- prospective university students left Haiti to go to the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. It also became productive in that it, that created a basis for a sort of a foundation for activism mm-hmm. uh, and ways to, you know, as in this current moment when there are all sorts of demonstrations about uh, in reaction to the death of George Floyd, um, the, the the same sort of mobilization occurs among university students. And it's not simply because of their issues, but it started there. And now it's kind of grown to look at issues of people of color uh, immigrant rights, women's rights. Wow. So, yeah. Sort of like gets big enough so that it draws in some of the local concerns, whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really, yeah, it's really fascinating because the thing with the protests is, or how they have they're they've hit all 50 States. I think that's so incredible. I don't know that that's happened before in terms of like looking at the death of a black man in, at the hands of a police officer. I don't like, in, in previous cases of like Michael Brown and, mm-hmm. and others, like, like, I don't know that it hit all 50 states. And it's, I don't, I certainly am not sure if it reached the level of, um, I guess, you know, passion and coordination that it's reached. Like, for example, here in Tampa, like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we had a big protest here. And um, I know that there was, yeah, like some violence and also interactions with police, but also, you know, the lion's share of it was peaceful, but that's right. another thing is that the, the media tends to report the violence, you know, gets sensationalized in a lot of ways. And, and I guess sort of the narrative 
also now depends on who's looking at it and analyzing it. And yeah, it's just really interesting to see how like the local concerns here do ultimately reflect some of the national concerns. And now each place, it, it, I guess it would be interesting to see what the differences are in terms of how each uh, protest around the country looked like, you know, almost like trying to compare and contrast how all the protests, like it, that would be kind of an interesting study to study to take on. Well, and and even we can think of uh, within Tampa, I I totally agree with you. I think think back to a graduate course I took at the University of Kansas, my first year as a grad student, it was called, uh, it was in the political science department called Protest and Revolution. Hmm. Uh, And at the time I fashioned myself as a a future, I don't know, Che Guevara or something. I don't know. I was just (laughs) really excited, but I didn't know anything. And so uh, let me take this course. Yeah. Uh, but and that gave me a sort of mechanical, the sort of s- traditional political science. If you have these metrics, then this will lead to protest and this will lead to revolution. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, from a more robust, holistic social science ap- approach, it would be incredibly interesting to see both differences now at this particular moment, as well as, uh, you know, uh, you know, across space, but also across time to see, you know, mm-hmm. Why was the Ferguson the Ferguson demonstrations? They were there were a couple, if I'm not mistaken, around the U.S., but it was mainly really all about Ferguson and that mm-hmm. area. But somehow, for some reason, this has, you know, gone international for that fact because there was demonstration in, in England as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I, you know, it's become fascinating as far as what's going on here. Um, to understand both what's happening at a specific site and across the country and to look at these sort of dynamics in a more systematic way. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the system, whether we're talking about the legal system, political systems, social systems, they, they all are constantly evolving as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost as if, I don't know, like everything was more like, like you said, like specific to Ferguson, for example, with um, six years ago in terms of like how the protests looked, it, it was more in support of that and trying to get justice for that. And I don't know if there's been a sort of, I wouldn't say unraveling, but a, a sort of transition within the social, political, institutional systems that we have that have now allowed people to realize, I guess, uh, how these issues now strike at home but also how they can sort of use the momentum of what's going on in order to address not only what happened, but also kind of have the change transcend not only what happened to now, you know, relate to where they are right now. Right. So like you said, like protests have erupted. Yeah. All around the world. Um, I was just reading about like the one in the UK yesterday and it's really, is really incredible just to think about how, the movement of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. is a global one at this point, right? And it, and two points is one it, on this to bring it back to the local for a moment and think about the first night of serious action with regard to to this issue and the response to George Floyd's death uh, and murder was that the demonstrations in in Tampa. Mm-hmm. leave alone St. Pete and Clearwater, but those in Tampa were at the University Mall. Right. 
which is, mm-hmm. and, and it was at a specific side of the university mall, which faces the universe, university, what's it called? The university development mm-hmm. area, which is one of the poorest areas of, you know, of Tampa. And it happens to also be uh, with a you know, high percentage of people of color there. Right. Um, and so I think it, to get back to this sort of broader understanding of like, you know, when this is happening, yes, there's this issue of the murder of George Floyd, but there's also this, these sort of other underlying long-term deep structural, structurally violent issues that, mm-hmm. you know, come out at the same time. It's kind of saying like this, these are things that are ongoing, um, and that I think they, 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 they come together. So it's, again, the sort of specificity for uh, different sites and what's going on in the local and the global and this sort of connection, which is one of the you know, important directions and contributions of, of anthropology. Right. So. Yeah. Um, I wonder what the relationship between uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic is. Because um, like you said, like, my, like students migrating, I think for university to the Dominican Republic from Haiti, and I um, I almost want to like sort of know more about the the systems there in terms of like how they relate to one another. It's a really cute dog. Thank you. <laughs> this is one of two. Yeah, oh. this is what I do. Put adorable. him on the video. Cuddle, cuddle, yes. little. <laughs> so the relationship between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I mean. I know it's a complicated one in terms of, I think race sort of is the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of like, I remember reading Ivan Max Kendi's uh, book, Stamp from the Beginning, and he's talking about the relationship between Haiti and Dominican Republic and Haiti being considered more like African oriented or black versus Dominican Republic, even though they have really similar histories, even really similar. I mean, they're on the same island essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to th- see how these like, dichotomies i guess sort of spring up i mean this gets to uh, one of my latest interests in research uh, because i guess for the past 10 years i've been working uh, with colleagues on a project called transnational hispaniola mm-hmm. uh, where we we're a particular generation of scholars coming in who met at a particular time um and it was actually, I guess, maybe 12 years ago, but I guess 10 to 12 years ago. And we were starting to look at this and saying, well, wait a second. These tropes, uh, Michelle Walker's book, Why the Cox Fight, uh, mm. which is more of a journalist sort of take on political history. But it really embodies uh, the ways in which uh, people, which the, these two countries are portrayed in the popular imagination. That there's one which is portrayed more this, you know, Haiti is portrayed more black, African, you know, voodoo, uh, you know, this sort of thing. And the Dominican Republic is, you know, lighter skinned, white, Catholic, you know, uh, these sorts of European. um, And on one hand, that just is a clear political use of of ethnicity and and national identity. and, and, and political leaders have done that for decades, right? I mean, in fact, you know, and with support sometimes of foreign powers, like when the U.S. intervened uh, in 1915, 1934 in Haiti, in 1916, 1924 in the Dominican Republic, 
um, so there has this sort of been this political use of difference. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, what that's been described as the fatal conflict model is that these mm. two countries and all the people are just destined to be antagonistic. Right. Uh, and that's one model. Um, and then there's this other model, which has been developing um, in the past. Well, you know, I guess really it's been developing the past 20 years um, where there's been more of a recognition of, well, there's some commonalities. There are first of a few people and now the more and more things and even more uh, even investment in these types of solidarities. Um, there was a music festival in 2007 or 2008, and it was called, I think it was called like the Haitian Music Festival. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was the first year that they did it. They had some Dominican bands show up so that they could get other people to show up, but it was at this big park and it was called the Haitian Music Festival in the middle of Santo Domingo. So imagine, right? This is, yeah. you know, of course, that raised so much of a stink for so many of like the, the cultural nationalists that the next year they had to change it to Festival de la Isla. So, you oh. know, f celebration or a festival of the island. Right. So they couldn't just have a Haitian festival. It has to be <laughs> island. So yeah. sometimes the solidarity is political and sometimes it's, uh, it's humanistic, we'll say. Mm-hmm. And what I've been working on is more of a critical model of relationships. Uh, and that's, you know, in the spring of 2019, I had this event that uh, I co-organized called Island Anthropologies. Um, and that's, you can look that up and all the information's on the, on the, on the internet there. Um, but that event was premised on the notion uh, it was underpinned with the, with the idea that these two countries have things in common and there are differences, mm -hmm. you know, and that both of these can simultaneously be true. Mm -hmm. um, but also we wanted to, I wanted to, you know, myself and those part who were invited and participated wanted to promote another way of thinking about the island. And in essence, another way of thinking about the Caribbean and by extension, another way of thinking about the world, mm. you know, so that it's mm. just not the Caribbean as being, you know, uh, or Haiti or the Dominican Republic being the cradle of blackness or the Caribbean mm. as being that which helped Europe become modern. But, you know, it's a way to think about things where we get rid of methodological nationalism, mm. right? Where we start to think, okay, Yes, going back to when we were talking about migration. Yes, people who are going from one place to another across an international border to study must take into consideration the state and national identity and national belonging. But they're not going, no one, they're not migrating because they're a particular nationality. They're migrating because they're students or they're migrating because they're workers. Right. And, and social science and I imagine national nat, natural science as well has been complicit in furthering this notion of the nation state as being a natural container for understanding and behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you know, Eric Wolf's work shows us anything, 
it's that that's just patently not true. Mm-hmm. And there has been exchanges, you know, among many people without history, uh, so to speak, where these interchanges have gone on. And that applies in the Dominican Republic in Haiti, where you have, you know, interactions across, you know, by families, uh, through market connections. And, and you can even go back even to look at the sort of pre-colonial moments and the indigenous populations that were all over the island. Um, and, and so to really kind of use Haiti and the Dominican Republic and say, okay, they're antagonistic or they get along is mm-hmm. to both, it's to simplify things, right? And right. social science should be to, you know, according to Michel Rolf Trio, we should be disrupting mental habits, Mm-hmm. As, as good intellectuals, not just academics, as you know, a practitioner in the university, but as an intellectual, we need to be disrupting mental habits and trying to question certain notions. Yeah. So part of the island anthropologies was to, um, one of the things I wanted to do with this is to uh, have this conversation between scholars to see overlaps and ways that they can collaborate, but how things have happened in the past in the present and the future under the broad umbrella of anthropology, whether it's ethnology or sociologia or whatever, um, or archeology, span whatever it is that comes together under this broad umbrella. But um, it's also to question, well, in the, in the publication for this book, I have, you know, Faye Harrison is going to write uh, a foreword. Hmm. Um, very f- happy and fortunate that she's supportive of this project. Um, and so she's going to write a foreword. And I've invited uh, Katarina Teaiwa, uh, who's a Pacificist anthropologist, uh, uh, who's uh, right now currently, at the, I think, in a university in Australia, Australian National University, I believe. Um, and she has been interested in looking at uh, Pacific Atlantic connections as well. And, and she's been writing, but she's been writing as about the note, the islands in that area of the Pacific ocean and looking at different models of coming together, despite all these different colonial regimes and different languages and everything. And so with the Island anthropology project, I really wanted to try and push this notion that, Let's question even the notion of the Caribbean. Why is the Caribbean a natural container for analysis? Maybe we need to think more from like a, almost like a critical ecological perspective from time to time. And Mm. that, you know, both politically and ecologically, how do people connect and how can we improve the human condition with this sort of knowledge by disrupting what is expected and normal? Sounds like, Wow, just because like thinking about it, it's like we do see kind of like the antagonism that you're talking about in terms of how we envision like Haiti, Dominican Republic. I mean, you can see that all around the world in terms of like all of these sort of narratives about two groups like having very historical and always in the media tribal um, like relations where they just did not like each other. Right. That being this whole thing. I mean, when we look at different parts of the world, um, like Pakistan, India, and talk about, look at, you know, Israel, Palestine, we, we see that as like this thing that 
the Hutu you know, and the Tutsi, right? It, yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect example of like this thing that seems so it becomes naturalized, and now it becomes a framework to mm-hmm. analyze it and look at it. And I guess, like, how 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 do you even do that? Because it's in everyone's minds. It's in it's implicitly in our language when we talk about like even culture or ethnicity, like it's, it, these are terms that often go undefined. And then we just sort of carry forth these like implicit beliefs about them. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the Caribbean, for example, how I, I, I guess I almost struggle with how do you sort of, I guess, get more specific with like, how, how do you stop like that sort of generalist sort of notion of, you know, the Caribbean and, you know, all these ideas comes into people's minds like you know they think about the ocean and Mm -hmm. islands you know separated from one another and they think about i mean a lot of the times like vacationing and because the caribbean's also like has a large tourist economy Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i I guess that's the question like how how do you how do you even do that because it sounds like a really big project to undertake yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's it's slightly smaller than what Rolf Trujillo was interested in doing, where he was exploding the notion of the West. Right. Uh, you know, uh, that was his, one of his stated concerns was let's let's denaturalize the notion of the West, uh, and social change is hard, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, however much there have been times when I've been one of the people out in the streets. Um, doing different things as in protest. I understand that that is a particular tactic, but so real social change takes time and energy and coordination. Um, and, you know, it's not easy. And just to give a, two little bits, one, one thing is to disrupt people's mental habits, right? By doing little things, uh, by doing research that you can demonstrate things and then, uh, you know, what we do with the findings of our research is to really be, you know, a more public intellectual, right? Mm-hmm. What is the public we're engaging with? That's a whole other question. Um, right. You know, mangoes. Hmm. I've done research on mangoes uh, in, in post-earthquake Haiti, post-2010 Haiti. And I was interested in the, the livelihoods and the lives of those people who were harvesting mangoes that were being exported to the United States and Canada and Europe. And I learned all sorts of interesting things about that. But I also learned that the mango is not indigenous to the Caribbean, (laughs) like so many other products. This fruit, which is almost like, you think Caribbean, I'm sure there's countless cocktails in Caribbean sunrise or something that has mangoes in it. But it's like the that's not of the Caribbean. That's imported from colonialism. Right. Uh, yeah. And I even told, you know, uh, I told some people from Haiti, like, you know, the mango's not from here, right? And you could almost see their head explode. <laughs> They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, it was brought. And I can tell you approximately when it came, you know, in the process. The, and they're like, well, what was here before? Just, <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing, and that really, those sort of wonderful little bits are good ways of disrupting people's thinking. Right. But to a, on a deeper and more profound level, um, to get to your question of how do we change this notion, um, it really, 
you know, I see the working with this island anthropologies thing as a way to get it an answer to your question. Hmm. Because at the end of this three day workshop, we had a session where it was called the future of island anthropologies or something like this. Hmm. You know, um, after we de dealt with one that was the challenges, um, at, but we talked about well, what do we do now? We've, we've met, we've interacted, we've all got each other's contact information. What do we do now? Hmm. Um, and everyone had, had said that that type of event that we held in Santo Domingo last year in 20, 2019, that type of event is exactly the type of event that needs to occur. Hmm. Um, because even though it was, you know, I was the prime mover in it. And I say that in the most humble way possible, but it was me who applied for a grant from the Wenner foundation and, and they funded it. Huh. Um, but you know, which is obviously external to the Island. I am not Haitian. I'm not Dominican. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and at the same time, you know, I made sure that we had, you know, uh, approximately a third of the people invited were from Haiti. Appro approximately a third of the people were from the Dominican Republic and a third of the people were from off the Island. Hmm. So, uh, that's one thing to do to make sure that there's the people who are involved are actually present. Right. We also tried to seek out both junior and senior scholars. So it's not just the same old talking heads, but you get different perspectives. Hmm. Um, and different research agendas and whatnot. We also made sure that we, um, it was myself and my co-organizer, uh, Luisa Rollins Castillo, who's a doctoral student in Chicago. Um, she and I talked about the importance of making sure women were involved. Uh, so it's not just a whole bunch of men talking about things that, you know, mm -hmm. that let's, you know, women, 50% of the population, let's get them involved. Right. Yeah. Um, and also pay attention to uh, issues of race and ethnicity as well. So uh, we can make sure that we have uh, representation in the, in the event itself. So that's one thing that they all identified, said this was good. Hmm. The next thing to do would be, you know, potentially uh, collaborating. So to identify material resources that can facilitate these type of events and collaborative research projects. Mm -hmm. um, another level of that is to incorporate funding for students so that it's, you know, reproduction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we keep this idea going and moving. So it's not just one guy had an idea in 2019 and it's dead, but mm -hmm. keep this going, right? Yeah. And that requires material resources. It requires um, grant money, uh, all sorts of whatever funds we can and material resources, material like infrastructure, uh, maybe institutional arrangements, um, all sorts of things to support such an idea. Right? Yeah. So hmm. it's the interchange between the material and the ideological uh, and everything in between. And it's the right. interchange between the local and the global. Mm -hmm. So I think that on a more philosophical level, uh, on the level of ideas, conceptual is, I think, how to get close to an answer to your question.
Yeah, that sounds really cool. And it it sounds like an event that yeah, it's it's about as much about knowledge exchange as much as it's about networking and new collaborations. And yeah, that that sounds like it's is definitely like planting the seeds for a larger sort of endeavor that you're exactly talking about. And I guess I'm thinking right now of how ultimately anthropology is all about how the particulars are interfacing with all of these different levels of, of exchange of knowledge of influence of institutions and, and individuals. And it's, it's just, I, I, I think I, just hearing you talk, it's like naturally going to come about like with increasing research of how, I guess, like making the familiar strange kind of idea of how ultimately through anthropological research, we're going to see exactly how not sort of uniform, this just one ball of a thing called the Caribbean that, you know, it really isn't. Mm-hmm. And and it, it makes me think about some of the, the, some of your research and some of the things you were talking about earlier. Um, of like getting to those particulars and for example how students you know are learning different things and ultimately migrating in order to you know continue their education under this sort of like developmental regime of having people get an education Mm -hmm. and there's just so much diversity in that like there's diversity in who's getting an education where they're going why they're going there Mm -hmm. and it's it's just, yeah, I guess it's like just a part of being human. And, and it sounds like the project you're talking about is exactly going to get at that as well, just like your previous research. Yeah, I hope so. And, yeah. and, and the last element is, of course, then to bring it back to education. And mm-hmm. when I'm teaching, uh, it's important for me to think about these sort of notions in the classroom. So if I'm teaching a course on anthropology of the Caribbean, which I may do in a couple of years, um, to introduce writings from the Pacific islands Mm -hmm. because these are effectively islands and islands have a certain set of issues that, you know, landlocked territories or those with, you know, know, those that are, you know, have large inland areas, they don't have to deal with. And so can we learn something about the Caribbean by looking right in the true sort of deep understanding, deep explanation that goes back over a hundred years in anthropology. Uh, mm-hmm. You look at Antonor Fermin, looking at some comparative things throughout history and saying, what have we learned here? And what have we learned here? And putting these two things together and what do we learn? Mm-hmm. You know, and this sort of deep sort of way of trying to live according to a more socially just, more data informed approach rather than just a strict ideology that uh, from a limited point of view right yeah it's drawing in everything in order to understand everything better it's like context yeah that's really awesome um yeah well i don't know if you have sort of a like a last word on term in terms of like what you think about everything that's going on right now or even in terms of looking forward for your research or anything else just to sort of you know, give you the last word on this conversation. Well, I want to, I want to thank you for doing this because, uh, you know, I I think it's very important um, for me to help think through these things. It's important for you. uh, I imagine to think through these things and the fact that you can do it on the spot is much, (laughs) you're much better man than me. Uh, Uh, 
but also for others uh, to be able to share this and who knows what they're going to do with it. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't know, but uh, I think it's very important. And I, I, I think that, you know, social change and uh, is hard, but humbly, I think that any sort of intellectual should be committed to making the world a better place and consider these issues. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It. Yeah.